Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right. Yes, indeed, everybody. Welcome back. Thank you for joining me. This is episode number 28. This is going to be a feature-length episode. And if you're not, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the cadence that we have here, um, if you're new to the podcast, every other episode is a feature-length episode. And the, uh, so episode, the episode that drops on Monday, there's two episodes a week. The episode that drops on Monday is what I call a feature-length episode. In other words, it's a long-form episode. And the episode that drops on Thursdays is typically a shorter episode which covers just a brief topic. But thank you for joining me here. This is uh, fantastic to have you here with me on the official study group uh, for the study of the letters from our founding fathers, America's founding fathers, that is. Actually, I don't know how official the study group is. I say that kind of jokingly. It's not really official, or maybe it is. I don't know. But uh, here we are. And you folks out there listening to this podcast, you are probably the the, the best that the founding fathers could have hoped for. Uh, You're taking your time, the time out of your day, to join us in the study of what these folks wrote, what it means, what they intended, and what were they working toward, and what were some of the hardships that they went through while they were doing it. Uh, You're here 250 years later, after the fact, almost 250 years, and you're dedicating your time to this, and in doing so, you are laying to rest the worst fears of the Founding Fathers when it came to this kind of thing, that everybody would just forget about them and move on. And the country would gradually slip into darkness, and the principles of the uh, American founding would be lost forever. That's what they were worried about in a great many ways. We've read about that. We've covered letters that talk about that before here on this podcast. We read one from uh, John Adams, and we also read one from John Jay, both of whom were concerned that this would be forgotten. But here you are, making sure that that doesn't happen. And I thank you for joining me here in that regard, and I thank you for getting the word out about the podcast also and spreading the word to so that other folks can come over here and join us as well. Because it's, it's going to take a lot of people studying this information to really keep it alive. And they're, you know the, the, the information that people get just with casual contact through history is not enough to keep this information alive, in my opinion. Watching a documentary here or there and watching a movie that is loosely based on the truth here and there, and reading the occasional random quote from one of the Founding Fathers, frankly speaking, all of that to, all of that combined is not enough to keep this history alive. It really isn't. It would be like, you know, reading a history of, or studying the history of World War II and only reading like five sentences of what happened. Is that, that's, that's fairly ineffectual. It's not going to accomplish anything. Uh, so that's why we're here. We're here to get into the get into the the long form version of this in as brief a manner as possible. I do try to shrink this information up as much as possible so that we only cover the most important things. But even with that, there's still a lot of information to cover. And on that note, we have a, a new guest on the podcast today. A great addition to the podcast, John Quincy Adams is going to be joining us on the podcast here today. Son of John Adams and the sixth president of the United States of America. Of course, we're going to be going live to 1774, so this is going to be before uh, John Quincy Adams, long before John Quincy Adams was president of the United States. But still, 
a great guest to have on the podcast, and we are honored to have him here with us today. Uh, so look forward to that. And we will be getting to that letter, and also I will be getting to that letter that I mentioned in episode 26, I believe it was, the letter from London. Although we did cover another letter from London on episode 27, uh, there was one particular letter I wanted to get to that we didn't get have time for on episode 26, but we will get to that today. Even if this episode has to run two hours long, we will get to it. I don't think it's going to take two hours, so I think we'll get to it. And of course, as always, I uh, like to make sure and mention my Patreon podcast. If anybody's interested, I do a separate podcast on Patreon, and it's at patreon.com slash podcastswithroman. The uh, link to that is in the description box to this podcast. And it is a subscription-based podcast over there on Patreon. And that's uh, really where I cover a wide range of topics that I just simply cannot cover on this podcast. Everything from technology to society, to also some uh, some history, also, that, that, that goes beyond what we cover on this podcast. So if you're interested, go, uh, go give it a look. I, I know you folks have a lot on your schedule, especially those of you who listen to a lot of podcasts, so asking for even more of your time to listen to yet another podcast is is asking something, so believe me, I'm, I'm well aware of that. But if you do decide to join me over on Patreon, I certainly appreciate it. That said, we're going to get into uh, this episode, and we're going to start getting into these letters again and pick up where we left off last week. And it's really going to be on very similar topics, because again, a lot of, most of these letters were intended to be covered last week on the uh, episode number 26 specifically. And so we're going to pick up there, and we've got some good ones here. we got another great letter from Mr. Tudor. Uh, our good friend, Mr. William Tudor. And then we've got a response from Adams back to Mr. William Tudor and so on and so forth. So it's going to be it's going to be a good episode. Stay tuned for this one. I think you'll uh, learn something along the way here by the end of this episode. So let's get into that right now. All right. Well, as the uh, as the wise man once said, those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. Interesting how he didn't say that in a positive light. Oh, those who don't understand history, it's great that they're going to repeat it. Now, he says they're doomed to repeat it. At least that's the way I understand the quote. It doesn't have a positive implication to it. It has kind of a negative implication to it. In other words, that the worst parts of history will basically come back to life. Keep that in mind as we go through this particular episode of the, uh, the podcast, please. That's gonna, it, it actually does apply here. So we're going to read a letter written from Mr. William Tudor, our good friend, Mr. William Tudor, to John Adams. This was written on September the 26th of 1774. Quote, A convincing proof of the great dependence we place on your counsels, and from whence you may form some idea how anxiously we wait for the results of your deliberations, the luxury and corruption that has debauched and depraved all ranks in Great Britain has led them to treat public virtue as a public jest, and to consider the love of one's country as the most idle reverie. But I hope this country will soon demonstrate to that mistaken nation that patriotism is not a chimera, and that Americans in full vigor retain that heroic virtue which once directed the conduct of their ancestors as well as ours. End quote. You know, this guy has a way with words, and he has a he has a he has a really great way of summing up a particular perspective in a very concise manner, doesn't he? Am I the only one who catches that? Oh, to hop in a time machine and go back and meet Mr. William Tudor and, and just uh, wax philosophical with this guy for a few minutes. That would, uh, that would be the gift of a lifetime. And to think that there are Americans who do not want to study this material. Doesn't that shock you? I, maybe it does. I don't know. So let's talk about this one. He talks about public virtue as a public jest. Quote, All ranks in Great Britain has led them to treat public virtue as a public jest. End quote. 
that basically means a joke. Uh, so public, there's that word virtue again, by the way. Remember that episode from some time back uh, on corruption and virtue? How these two things are, they play off of one another. In other words, as you begin to withdraw virtue from a society, corruption inevitably begins to take its place, right? You cannot, you cannot have corruption when virtue, and I'm talking about real virtue, I'm not talking about false virtue or pretend virtue or made-up virtue that was created in, in the figment of somebody's imagination or their head. I'm talking about real substantive virtue, like what people 10,000 years ago would have thought of virtue, or 5,000 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, or 250 years ago in the colonies, and especially in Massachusetts of the time. Keep in mind, William Tudor's ri writing this from a Massachusetts perspective. It's very important to understand that. And this is where the uh, the Puritans and the Separatists largely ended up, was in this part of the world. And these were people who were very religious in their nature, sometimes misguided, but very religious and very uh, very strong in their beliefs. And this strong sense of virtue that they had, you take that you take that out of the equation, and corruption will begin to seep in. It always does. And in Britain, he uh, he accuses them of treating public virtue as a public jest, like a joke. You know, riddle me this: does does that sound familiar to you at all? Does it sound familiar to you at all that somebody would treat public virtue as a public jest? Let me uh, give you an example of this. When somebody is referred to in this country and this society today, that is to say the United States of America, and honestly probably most of the Western world, if they're referred to as being puritanical, is that intended as a positive or is it, is it intended as a negative, like a joke or a, a pejorative? And by pejorative, uh, obviously, I mean something derogatory, something negative. Of course, it's the latter. It's meant to be something negative. Well, what, what is puritanical? It means being a Puritan, right? Well, what is being a Puritan? It usually, it typically implies a strict adherence to biblical virtue, does it not? A strict adherence, an, an adherence that most people would disapprove of. And I'm not trying to get religious on you folks here. I'm trying to cast this in, a light, in the light of 1774. If you want to go back in time, I, I, I say this over and over again. You cannot make history what you want it to be today. You can't look at 1774 from a 2022 perspective. You really cannot. You have to look at it from a 1774 perspective if you're going to understand it. Those are the keys to the kingdom. Do you understand how that works? What do I mean by that when I say that those are the keys to the kingdom? If you want to unlock the door to the mystery of 1774, and, the, and it's not so mysterious to us as, say, ancient Egypt is, but you get the idea. If you want to unlock the, the door to that mystery, the key that you have to use is that, pers that, that, that point of view from 1774. How was William Tudor thinking during this time? What was his perspective? What was his education? What was his religion? What was his background? If you want to understand what the man is talking about, you have to go back and you have to unlock that door. And the keys to the kingdom is understanding this language. What does he mean when he talks about public virtue? What was virtue to William Tudor? Well, to understand that, you have to understand where this guy, was gr where, where this guy grew up and where he was raised. You know, it's like a couple episodes when we're reading a letter from somebody and he starts talking about, you know, the only people who are going to be saved are the people who, who mark their lintels and their doorposts. What in the world does that mean? What do you mean, mark your lintels and your doorposts? Well, that's a biblical reference. And no, you don't have to be a Christian to listen to this podcast, and you don't have to be a Christian to, to listen to or to understand what these people were talking about. That's not what I'm saying, so don't misunderstand me. Don't think, I'm, don't think this is a purely religious podcast or something all of a sudden. It's not. I'm just telling you, those are the keys to the kingdom. No pun intended. If you want to understand, if you want to unlock the door of 1774, you really have to understand that. So, you, so he's talking about this public virtue as a public jest. It's very similar to what we have today. Public virtue is becoming a public jest. It's not, it's not there yet. It's not quite to that point yet, but it's getting close. And, uh, and I'm telling you, you, you need to keep an eye out for this because if your country, and, and honestly, Europe has a bigger problem of this than we do here in the United States at this point, 
honestly, it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. Honestly, Europe is actually a little bit better on this than than us, that is to say us in the United States in some regard. I can, I can get into details on that, but I'm not going to because it's going to get a little bit too uh, political. That's un- It's unnecessary political. I don't, I don't tend to do politics that are unnecessary on this podcast. Uh, for good reason, we like to stay on topic here. But Europe is better than us in some ways in this regard. But also, but they also have a, uh, I think, a larger scale problem on their hands too. You got to keep an eye on this thing, folks, because if you if you don't watch this and you don't be careful how this is handled in society, you're going to end up in a situation like what Great Britain had and what the colonies had in 1774. You're going to end up in a situation where your rights and your liberty are under under attack by people who treat public virtue as a public jest. You understand? And honestly, that may already be happening in some regard. Maybe not completely, maybe not 1774 style, but you could see it trending in that direction. And why is it trending in that direction? Remember what I said just a few moments ago? Those who do not, those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. People do not understand how to stop this from happening. I'm just going to put that out there. No, very few people in the United States of America understand how to stop 1774 and 1775, more importantly, from happening all over again, which means it's probably going to happen to some degree all over again, like the Intolerable Acts. You think that can't happen again? It probably will. Why? Because we're not paying attention to it, uh, like we should be. That's why this podcast exists. This is the study group for those who want to try to get in front of this thing before it gets so bad it's out of control. So before we get to that point, Let's let's deal with these problems that William Tudor is talking about. Let's let's deal with those problems instead of dealing with the problems of 1776. Let's start dealing with public virtue as a public jest. Don't do that. Don't participate in that. And if you see somebody participating in it, correct them. Uh, because William Tudor is very much of a mind here that this is playing into what's going on. He's telling you, he's communicating to you from 1774, he's broadcasting to you, he's talking to you. Out there, the listener of this episode of this podcast, he's talking to you. Do you hear him? He has a message for you. It's like a message in a bottle. Imagine you're standing on a beach, and this bottle washes up on shore. A message from the past, from somebody who's urgently trying to get a message to you. And his name is William Tudor. Let's continue. Quote, And to consider the love of one's country as the most idle reverie. End quote. What is a reverie? That means a dream or a delusion. So he, he, say, he says that these people in Britain consider the love of one's country as the most idle reverie, a delusion. Isn't that interesting? So what, 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 are the, what the heck do the people in Great Britain that he's talking about here, what do, they, what do they think is important? Well, we talked about that a couple episodes ago, right? Episode 26? Or actually, no, excuse me, episode 27. Uh, the short form episode where we talked about um, money and the career of power. Remember that? That's what they're concerned with. Money and the career of power. Now, tell me we don't see that today. Everywhere in the world, not just the United States, in Europe, you see it. In the United States, you see it. In Asia, you see it. This love of money and the career of power over the love of one's own country. As a matter of fact, sometimes patriotism, and that's the word for it, the love of one's country, isn't patriotism just the word for that? Isn't that cast in a negative light in certain circles today? And what's replacing it? Just like with virtue, corruption replaces virtue. What's replacing the love of one's own country? The love of money. And speaking of a, a, a biblical lesson, what, is the, what does the Bible tell us that the, that the love of money, what is that? It's the root of all evil, right? The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And here we are, folks, right here in William Tudor's writings, and and the the writings that we read from London in the last episode, episode number 27. Go back and listen to that if you haven't listened to that. It's very informative. It dovetails really nicely with this particular letter here, doesn't it? That's why I wanted to go back in that episode and pull that. That that letter that I read in episode 27 was really intended to be read read earlier on, 
but uh, it, it had been, it had gotten cut from the lineup, and then I went back to it, and I was like, it fits very nicely with this, so I have to, I have to read it, and I did, and it it very well communicates the other half of the picture here uh, that that William Tudor's talking about, and you know, is it a problem to think of patriotism as a as a delusion, a reverie uh, is the word that he uses, which means delusion. Is it a problem to think of patriotism or the love of one's own country as a delusion? That's a question you have to ask yourself, and I suppose it depends upon the country or the ideal. Um, you know, if you if you're if you live in a truly evil country, I suppose it could be a problem. And perhaps some people think of, think of the United States as an evil country. Perhaps maybe that's why people have a problem with this today. You think that's got something to do with it? And why would they think of the United States as an evil country? I don't know. I mean, considering that a great many people like to come here. I mean, for an evil country, the United States sure does have a lot of people flocking at the gates to get in here, don't they? I mean, if this country was truly evil, don't you think people would want to stay away? I mean, it would be like a it would be like a Berlin situation in in the 1940s, where during the during the early days of Berlin, East Berlin and West Berlin, people from East Berlin were leaving in droves to go to the West, and especially the educated class, like doctors and whatnot, they were just flooding into the West. And, and the reason why the Berlin Wall was built was to keep the people in, because they didn't want to keep hemorrhaging all of this intellectual knowledge and skill. They, they had to keep the skill base. So to do that, they had to keep the people in, which means that the West is better. Anytime that kind of phenomenon happens, you know that the other side is better. When people are leaving in droves and coming into another place, that other place is better, which is, what, which is the situation that you have with the United States. I know a lot of people don't want to admit that, but that's the way that it is. You got people flocking at the gates to get in here for for one simple reason: the United States is better. Oh my gosh, Roman said it. We finally we finally pulled back the curtain, and Roman is Roman is some kind of a an imperialist. Blah blah blah. Okay, yeah, sure. No, it's just simple reality, folks. And history, history, like I've said it before, history will answer any question you want. If you have a question, history has the answer. You just have to know where to look and how to ask the question. And you have to you have to you have to you know. You have to take the ideology out of your head. You have to scrub that from your skull, and you actually have to look at history with a um, with a balanced eye. So you want to know you want to know why in the world is the United States having all these people constantly wanting to get in here? And it ha- that's been, it's been that way since the beginning, right? Since the 1700s, people have been flocking at the gates to get in here, right? Why is that? Well, just look at Berlin in the 1940s. A- answers the question. Boom, right there. And if you've got a problem with history, then you've got a problem with history. I suggest you square yourself with that and and move on with your life. Quit trying to fight history. History history is not something that is that is there to be fought. It's going to be like beating your head up against a brick wall. You're never going to win that fight. History is always going to win. Are there some countries that are better than the United States? Eh, you know, it depends on what you're talking about. There, there are people who think so. There are people who think that some aspects of this country are better, some aspects of that country are better, and that's fine. It just depends on, it just depends on, you know, what your perspective is and what you value. Like, what do you value? You know, if you, if you value, if you, if you value freedom and liberty, probably you're going to say the United States is better than just about anywhere else in the world. If you do not value freedom and liberty, then you might say someplace else is better. In which case, I strongly suggest you leave and you go there, wherever that is. Could be anywhere. But again, good luck with that. No, ma- no matter how much people seem to think that the United States is not a great place, they seem to also just, again, not want to leave. They just they just don't want to leave, which tells you everything you need to know. I mean, if, if other people are willing to leave their country, why aren't people willing to leave the United States? It's an interesting question. I mean, even when people don't speak the language, the English language, they're still willing to come here and struggle it out. But you flip the flip the coin around, it doesn't really, doesn't really happen very often. It does happen sometimes, but not very often. Not by the millions. So I say all of that to, to talk about this concept of patriotism because William Tudor brought it up. Don't think I'm going off on a tangent here. This is all very strict. We're sticking strictly to what William Tudor mentioned here. And I, I think there is this, this problem in the United States today of patriotism and loving one's own country. I think it's been lost. 
among certain circles, not all circles, but in certain circles it has. And there are some people who do regard it as a reverie, just like William Tudor's talking about here in Britain. And why, why am I comparing and contrasting? Why don't I just go on with the letter and talk about Britain in 1774? Because again, if you do not understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. The, the quote doesn't say, if you don't study history, you're doomed to repeat it. It says, if you don't understand history, you're doomed to repeat it. You can study history all day long, but if you don't understand it, what's the point? In other words, you can read these letters until the cows come home, but if you don't understand what William Tudor's trying to say to you, what is the point of any of this? You're just wasting your time being here if you're not trying to understand it. And the way that I help you understand it is to put it in a modern context and to compare and contrast and also to tell you, you need to keep an eye out for this, otherwise it will repeat again. This is going to happen again. Somebody is going to treat public virtue as a public jest, a joke. And somebody is going to say that the love of one's own country is a delusion, a reverie, and it's going to happen again. And we are going to end up in a very, very bad situation because of it. And if you don't think I'm accurate on that, crack open a history book, start read. Come back to me in about three or four years after you've read through a number of history books and tell me again I was wrong. Good luck with that. Anybody intellectually honest will know that I'm right about this, and so is William Tudor. I'm only right about this because I listen to William Tudor and people like him, and John Adams for that matter. It's not like I come up with this stuff. I just, I, I learn from the best. I learned from the best that this country has produced. They are the wise old men. I am just the student. And like I said, this is our study group. I'm a student just like you. I just happen to be leading the study group. That's all. And maybe you disagree with me on some of this stuff, and that's perfectly fine. You know, uh, like I said, reasonable people can agree to disagree, at least on most things, certainly. Uh, we can agree to disagree. And if you disagree, like I said, just leave a comment, leave a review on the podcast, and let me know in, in a positive way, in a constructive way, and I'll, I'll integrate it into the podcast, and I'll talk about it. There used to be a time in this country where people could agree to disagree, and they could do so in a friendly and respectful and intellectual manner. I hope to see that at some point on this podcast. If somebody does disagree, they can uh, they, they can do it in an intellectual and very polite and respectful manner, uh, just as I try to disagree uh, with, with some folks in, in the same way. And he continues on here, uh, William Tudor, quote, But I hope this country will soon demonstrate to that mistaken nation that patriotism is not a chimera, and that, the, uh, that Americans in full vigor retain that heroic virtue which once directed the conduct of their ancestors as well as ours, end quote. A chimera, by the way, means impossible in this context, some, something unattainable. So patriotism is not a chimera, he says. So he's basically saying that Americans, with their virtue intact, will rise to the occasion and demonstrate to that mistaken nation, he's talking about Britain, that their patriotism is not some impossible, un you know, unreachable thing. It's very real, and it's going to manifest itself in the defense of liberty, in the defense of their sacred rights as they see them. You know, and they're, the Britain is trying to overthrow those ancient rights, and that's why, they, that's why they regard the love of one's country as being a chimera or a reverie. Something impossible, a delusion, is because people want to, you, you, you almost have to attack that before you can take away people's rights and liberties. If you can attack somebody's love of their country and destroy it, it becomes very, very difficult for them to defend their rights and their liberties. And we're going to find out in 1775 that the Founding Fathers did not have their patriotism, their love of their country, that is to say Massachusetts in this case, destroyed. These people loved their country, Massachusetts. Massachusetts was their country from William Tudor's perspective, from John Adams' perspective. And they had a great deal of affection for their for their patriotism and their virtue there, and thus defended their rights and their liberties. We should learn from that. We should learn from that, that, that lesson from history. And I, I really enjoy this line. Quote, Americans in their full vigor retain that heroic virtue which once directed the conduct of their ancestors. End quote. Isn't that a beautiful line? And couldn't, couldn't that be as applicable today as it, as it was back then? There are certainly a lot of Americans who feel very much this way. They really do. And that's a good thing, I think. 
Americans in their full vigor retain that heroic virtue? Yes, of course, it's a good thing. It can be, if it's applied in the right direction in a positive way. Yeah, sure. Take all the take all the hatefulness out of society today and replace it with that. I think we'd be I think we'd be in a lot better place. Roman, are you saying that there's a lot of hatefulness in society today? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. There is a lot of hate out there. Hate seems to seems to be the primary driver of this country as of late. And I think that's a, that's a very serious problem. It's not the only driver of this country, but it does seem to be the primary driver, at least in certain circles, right? Not in every circle, not in your local small town community perhaps. But, but in, in the aggregate, on a, if you're looking at it from a macro level, there seems to be a great push for that. Let us continue. Quote, It is now almost four months since the Unrighteous Cruel Port Act took place, and though it has been carried into execution with an unparalleled severity, the people are resolved to keep the harbor blockaded to eternity rather than basely submit to the tyrannic edicts of a British parliament, in which every principle of sound policy has been made to yield to the dictates of ministerial revenge backed by royal obstinacy, End quote. You can tell he's getting a little worked up here, can't you? Very passionate about this. He manages to make his point, though. Like, again, I, I, I marvel at this. The Founding Fathers and their ability to make a salient point without the use of any profanity in an argument, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a discourse between two intellectual individuals. So what is he saying? Quote, The people are resolved to keep the harbor blockaded to eternity rather than basely submit to the tyrannic edicts of a British parliament. End quote. The people of Boston were much inclined to suffer rather than lose their liberty. And isn't that the mark of somebody determined to be free? That they're willing to suffer in order to, in order to keep their liberty. And I, I would really hate to see that sacrifice by these men of 1774 and 75 and 76. I would hate to see that sacrifice thrown under the bus by later generations that are willing to suffer not one bit for anything. It seems that suffering is a lost art. At least in this context, you know, in the context of preserving one's liberty. It seems to be a lost art in certain circles. I mean, you threaten to take away somebody's Netflix subscription and they're probably going to be screaming for mercy in a lot of cases. Not in all cases, don't get me wrong. There are some folks out there who are very determined, very liberty-minded, and they don't give a hoot and a holler about their Netflix subscription. But there's a lot of people out there, they lose their Netflix subscription. And I tell you what, they'd probably knuckle under and say, oh, no, please give it back. You can take away my liberty, just give me my Netflix. And there I go attacking Netflix again. I, it's like I said, again, don't take that too seriously, folks. It's just a foil. That's that's my, uh, that's the that's the board that I constantly beat this point against, you know, just just for a rhetorical exercise. But, it, but again, this is a very important lesson, isn't it? If you want to keep your liberty, you're probably going to have to suffer in some particular kind of way because if, if a government goes dark and is very, very determined to smash your liberty into a thousand pieces and cast it into the ocean... You're probably going to have to suffer somewhat to actually retain that liberty, don't you think? And what is it with tyrannical parliaments wanting to take away people's liberty? Have you ever noticed that? What is it about getting a bunch of people together in a room to make laws that causes them to eventually go tyrannical and start taking away people's liberties and basic fundamental freedoms? What is it with that? Doesn't that seem to be a trend throughout history? Remember the, remember the saying that's going to drive this podcast episode, those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it. Remember that? If you want your parliament to not be like that of 1774 Britain. You better pay attention. If you don't pay attention, something is going to go horribly wrong, and people are going to suffer greatly for it, in the short term and in the long term. And if you think it's going to get better in the long term, well, you're probably wrong. It's not going to get any better. These things tend to get worse over time. And, you know, every once in a while, I can almost feel the voice out there somewhere. Oh, Roman, for Pete's sake, could you please not be so doom and gloom about everything? And could you please be a little more light-hearted about what you're talking about? Yeah, you know, 
There, there's a reason why some folks will never listen to this podcast, and it's because it's not a walking clown show. Some people just want to laugh all the time, right? And other people want to engage in vigorous intellectual exercise, and that's you folks who listen to this podcast, and I thank you for that. And the Founding Fathers thank you for that. The Founding Fathers loved engaging in strong intellectual discourse. That's what William Tudor's doing with this letter right here. The back and forth between him and John Adams, it's always that. It's these two great, powerful intellects constantly playing off one another, and... And growing as they, as they begin to sharpen each other. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And these, these two men, they, they sharpen their intellects against one another. And that's a good thing. It's hard to do that with the clown show. It's really hard to do that. So William Tudor's got some great points here, and he ain't, he ain't done yet. We got, we got one more section here to read. Quote, The Bostonians have learned to suffer, and their sufferings have operated in making them more determined. Take one instance, sir. Among a hundred others... The other day, being at the North End, I fell into a conversation with an honest ship carpenter. Very dull times, Mr. R. Quote, Yes, sir, very dull. The last vessel which was upon the stocks in this port of the town was launched this week, and there is not like to be another set up, for the Admiral will not let them sail after they are launched. End quote. This is very discouraging. Pray, don't you think it almost time for us to submit, pay for the tea, and get the harbor opened? Quote, Submit? replied the indignant mechanic. No, it never can be time to become slaves. I have yet got some pork and meal, and when they are gone, I will eat clams. And after we have dug up all the clam banks, if the Congress will not let us fight, I will retreat to the woods. I am always sure of acorns, end quote. What a Roman. By heavens, I glory in being this man's fellow citizen. When I meet with such sentiments from such a person... I easily anticipate the period when, Bos when Bostonian shall equal Spartan virtue and the great American colonies rival in patriotism and heroism the most celebrated of the Grecian republics, your humble servant, William Tudor, end quote. And again, uh, you might hear the various quotes and end quotes throughout that quotation. That's me quoting the sailor, the ship, car or the ship carpenter. So in, in this quotation... Uh, where William Tudor is talking, he is quoting at times the ship carpenter. So you'll hear me say quote and end quote. That's not me ending my quotation of William Carpenter. That was me ending my quotation of the carpenter. It can be difficult to follow that. My apologies for it, but I have to do that so you can understand the difference between who's talking at any given time. Is it is it William Tudor that's talking or is it the ship carpenter? Okay, so you get the idea. But what a, what a great story, right? And it's nice to hear these stories from 1774. It really puts you right there. You can imagine standing on the ship docks at Boston in 1774 and listening to a William Tudor and a ship carpenter talk back and forth at one another about what's going on. And this ship carpenter is just absolutely fantastic, isn't he? Like when William Tudor says, quote, This is very discouraging. Pray, don't you think it almost time for us to submit, pay for the tea, and get the harbor opened? End quote. And the carpenter responds, quote, Submit? No, it never can be time to become slaves. I have yet got some pork and meal, and when they are gone, I will eat clams. And after we have dug up all the clam banks, if the Congress will not let us fight, I will retreat to the woods. I am always sure of acorns, end quote. And notice how he looks to the Congress to, quote, let us fight, end quote. And if they don't, he's just going to retreat to the woods and start eating acorns. So he doesn't care if they start getting starved out by the British military in Boston because of the port closure and other things. He's willing to suffer. He's willing to go the distance for liberty. How many Americans could say that today? Yeah, I think it was in the last episode I mentioned that there, there's always some people out there that are willing to sell their grandmother for a nickel. That's kind of a joke, but you get the idea. 
In every country all over the world, there are these people out there. And honestly, there's a great many of them, unfortunately. I don't think it's a majority of people by any stretch of the imagination, but there's a lot of them willing to sell their grandmother for a nickel. And they're the same people who won't surrender their Netflix subscription for their liberty either, by the way. But thank goodness... This ship carpenter in Boston in 1774 was not one of those people, and neither was William Tudor for that matter. These people were willing to go the distance. You know, I've long, in this concept of suffering, you need to dwell on that for a little bit. I've long regarded it as a big problem when parents in this country, and the United States is very guilty of this, when parents say to their children, you know, or say about their children, I just want my kid to be happy. I just want my kid to be happy. Here's a, here's a newsflash, parents out there. If you're a parent out there, for God's sakes, don't ever ever say that about your children and don't ever say that in front of your children please don't ever do it you're going to hurt them by doing that you're going to you're going to harm your children by saying that and by trying to make that happen you just want them to be happy is that what life is all about is life all about being happy no it's not you know what life is all about it's about a lot of things it is about being happy sometimes but it's also about this quote the bostonians have learned to suffer and their sufferings have operated in making them more determined end quote isn't that interesting now, it's not that you want your children to suffer, but if, 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 quote, I just want my children to be happy, end quote, is your, is your philosophy on raising your children, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I mean, if my parents had had that mindset when I was a child, and I don't think that they did, judging by some of the things my father told me when I was a kid, I don't think I, I don't think I would have turned out quite the way that I was. And my parents understood, you know, that, that suffering in some cases does lead to being more determined. It leads to discipline because they were in the military. And I think they had a grasp on this. I think they had a grasp that, that suffering sometimes is a necessary thing. And you don't want your children to, quote, just be happy, end quote. Because otherwise, they will not be prepared for times like this. If this ship carpenter's parents had lived that philosophy of, I just want them to be happy, I doubt very seriously he would have said something like this, quote, Submit? No. It never can be time to become slaves. End quote. I don't think he ever would have said that. I think he would have said, yeah, we need to. I think he probably would have said something more like, yeah, we need to, uh, we need to just surrender. We need to just give up uh, so we can get this port back open because I just want to be happy. And part of me being happy is not eating acorns or clams or whatever, whatever, you know, god-awful food it was this guy's talking about eating because he's suffering. Am I right? Am I on to something here? Or am I not? Let me know in the reviews to this podcast if you so choose. Or again, if you like, go over to Patreon. Patreon, you know, it's, it's in the description box to the podcast. I won't rattle it off again. But uh, go over to Patreon, leave a comment, review, uh, send me a question, etc. All that good stuff. And I like this closing line, by the way, when he's talking about the carpenter. Quote, What a Roman! By heavens, I glory in being this man's fellow citizen. When I met with such sentiments from such a person, I easily anticipate the period when Bostonians shall equal Spartan virtue and the American colonies rival in patriotism and heroism the most celebrated of the Grecian republics. End quote. Yes. That's fantastic, right? Fantastic. You know what I like most about the Founding Fathers when they're writing here? It's just the just the just the eloquence of their speech, their words. It's fantastic. I like I like listening to these guys talk. I don't know how anybody could not enjoy this. There are some people who come into the podcast and they never come back. I can tell because I look at the numbers. I, I look at the numbers to this podcast a lot, and I know I know uh, I know what's going on with uh, you know with people who cruise into the podcast and they don't come. I can tell. I, I don't know each individual person. I can't like in the numbers to the podcast, the metrics. I can't see individual persons per se, but I can I can see number. I can see the numbers in such a way that certain people just don't stick around the podcast, and I wonder why is that? Especially when you have people so eloquent and so so articulate in their speech as far as what's going on at this particular, this most important period of time in history. And maybe not the most important period of time in history, but certainly right up there. It's probably in the top 10 because it changed the world in a very noticeable way. Everything, technically everything changes the world. Every little event. It's the butterfly effect, right? But this, 
Yeah, you don't notice the butterfly, by the way. Most people don't even know it's there. But this is something you can notice. You know, and you know this. Uh, I, I dwell a little bit on this concept of suffering because it's so very important. You know, he mentions it throughout this letter in, in one way, shape, or form or another. You know, and this character, you know, of of living a life of only seeking happiness, it, it's not it's not really a character much character trait much at all. It's actually weakness. If you live your life only seeking to be happy, you're certainly never going to hold on to your freedom or your liberty. You're going to be one of those people that Benjamin Franklin warned the world about. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but his his old quote of, you know, those who give up liberty for security deserve neither. They deserve neither their liberty nor their security. That's these kind of people that seek happiness instead of knowing that suffering is a part of life. And constantly seeking out happiness or always wanting to be happy, always wanting to be happy, not sometimes wanting to be happy, but always wanting to be happy, it's a, it's a great sign of weakness. And, the, and governments can see that. If you don't think your government can see that weakness, you are delusional. These people are like jackals. And they, they can they can smell it in the water. They're like sharks, I guess would be a better way to put it. They can smell that weakness in the water. And if they feel that you've grown weak, that you're more attached to your Netflix subscription than you are to your liberty, they will know exactly what to do with you. And believe me, it's not going to be pleasant by the time it's all over. It's going to be a very unpleasant experience for you. Or for your children and grandchildren. So don't don't let these tyrannical parliaments, to the extent that they exist, smell that weakness in the water. Don't. Let them smell that in the water. Don't do it. You're only going to encourage them to ride roughshod over you and steamroll you. You need to be a little bit more like William Tudor and this carpenter that he was talking about. Oh, Roman, who are you to tell me who I should be or shouldn't be? Well, you know, if you disagree with me, like I said, reasonable people can agree to disagree. But in my humble opinion, I think we should all aspire to be more like a William Tudor and the carpenter on the docks of Boston that he met back in 1774. And I certainly hope that his character can survive the ages and be an example to people for a thousand years to come as to how to conduct yourself in a situation such as the one that these people were dealing with. You know, and this this great, this, this, the thing about, you know, always seeking happiness, you know, if the tyrant, all the tyrant needs to do is figure out what makes you happy and take that away from you. And then he controls you because you're, if, you, if your life is all about being happy, if your life is just all about one funny joke from one end to the next, all the tyrant has to do is come in and threaten to take that away from you and then he owns you. Do you see that? You see how that works? He owns you for the rest of your life. If he knows that your Netflix subscription is your, is your squeal point, that's, what, that's the thing that you will never give up. They can take your liberty, they can take everything away from you, then all he's got to do is threaten to take that away from you and you're done. He owns you. Don't ever give him that window. Don't do it. That's that's what this carpenter is saying when he says, quote, I have yet got some pork and meal, and when they are gone, I will eat clams. And after we have dug up all the clam banks, if the Congress will not let us fight, I will retreat to the woods. I am always sure of acorns, end quote. That's basically him telling William Tudor that he doesn't have that, it, he doesn't care about, a whit about his happiness. The Parliament has no leverage over this man. He is willing to go to the go to the forest and eat the acorns off the ground if he has to, in order to keep his liberty. My gosh, it's a no wonder these people fought a war, didn't they? It takes a lot. You ever wonder how these people did it? How did a bunch of farmers, dock workers, carpenters, stand shoulder to shoulder up against British regular military musket fire? How did they do it? Because of this guy. Because of this ship carpenter on the on the docks of the, of the port of Boston. That's how they did it. They were willing to suffer just about anything to keep their liberty. Just about anything. And because of that, the United States is this place where everybody is flocking at the gates to get into today. And has been since the beginning. Because the United States could have happened anywhere, technically. It could have happened in Europe. It could have happened in the Ural Mountains of Russia. It could have happened 
in the in the in the river valleys of China. It could have happened anywhere, but it happened here. Why? Not because of the geography, not because of the geography at all, but because of this ship carpenter, because of this guy, this uh, this quote honest ship carpenter end quote from the port of Boston. That's why it happened here because these people were here. That's the only reason why. Really, if you want to know the 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 final answer, that's why. Isn't that something? So the world owes this ship carpenter right here a debt, don't don't they? All those people who have flocked at the gates of the United States to get in, don't you think they owe this ship carpenter a debt of gratitude? Of course they do. We all do. I repay that debt by doing this podcast in part and by doing the other things. And we should all repay that debt by just listening to him, not letting his voice fade into obscurity and be lost for all time, but remembering it. Remembering that a long time ago, 250 years ago, almost, when the world needed somebody to pick up the flag of liberty, this carpenter was there. And he did it, regardless of the consequences. Knowing full well that his own military could be used against him, and it was. Knowing full well that his own military could be used against his neighbors, and it was. Knowing full well that his own military could be used to kill his neighbors and murder them, and it was. He did it anyway. And how many people have benefited from that? Have taken advantage of that liberty that he helped provide without even knowing who this guy is? And without thinking at all about being grateful to that man? And being grateful to William Tudor? And being grateful to John Adams? And being grateful to Samuel Adams? The thing that, the thing that hurts me most is this ungratefulness. This casual ungratefulness that people have for these men. And these women, too, by the way, you know, the unsung heroes uh, at s- some of the time, not all the time, of the of the revolution and of the founding of the United States are the women behind the scenes that were so patriotic. Speaking of patriotism not being a chimera or a reverie, the women were so patriotic in many cases. Like, And Abigail Adams is very much a stand-in for a lot of those women. She's very representative of them. And we've read Abigail Adams on this podcast. She's been a guest on this podcast, and for good reason. Brilliant woman. And I think this country should do more. And I think the people who come to this country, frankly speaking, and live here, who were not born here, I think they should take more time to be very grateful for what these people did, for what Abigail Adams did, and what she sacrificed, and what she was willing to sacrifice. Her house was not a few miles away from the British Navy as it was bombarding Boston in 1775. Her children were in grave danger as the British military was marching around the the, the Massachusetts countryside, killing people. Her children were in grave danger, and we're going to hear from one of her children on this episode of the podcast. Like I said, this episode might go two hours long, I don't know, but I have a lot of points, there's a lot of points to be made in this particular episode of the podcast, and I want to really take some time with that, because this letter from William Tudor is one of the best letters I've ever read uh, from anybody of this time period. It's fantastic. And the the sentiments of virtue and patriotism, and this character of of the the regular guy, the regular worker, the blue-collar worker, as we would call it today, the ship carpenter. And there's a lot of blue-collar workers in the United States today that are just like this guy. They're just like this ship carpenter. And in, in many cases, they, some of these folks are some of the best that this country has to offer. These people who really believe that, that their liberty and their freedom and this love that they have of their country. And in the, in the case of this guy, Massachusetts was his country. And he, he really had a profound attachment to, that, to Massachusetts. And he, his sentiments here are absolutely fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And William Tudor really communicates them very well. And, and I'm, I'm glad that he, that he communicated that story to us. I really am. I wonder sometimes if William Tudor understood fully that 250 years later, he would be communicating this story to so many people around the world, not just in the United States. But here we are. And thank you for being here. Again, I value you folks who join me on this podcast so very, very much. Your quality is... is fantastic, just because you're taking your time to study this material and to really appreciate what these people did and what they wrote. 
Now let's let's see what John Adams has to say in response to this. This is going to be a letter from John Adams to William Tudor written on September the 29th, 1774, a few days after William Tudor wrote him. And this is written from Philadelphia. John Adams, again, is still in Philadelphia with the Congress. Important to know that. Quote, I wish it was in my power to write to you anything for the relief of your anxiety under the pressure of those calamities which now distress our beloved town of Boston and province of Massachusetts. The sentiments expressed in your last to me are such as would do honor to the best of citizens, in the minds of the virtuous and worthy of any age or country in the worst of times. Dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. Wouldst thou receive thy country's loud applause, loved as her father, as her God adored? Be thou the bold asserter of her cause, her voice in counsel, and the fight her sword. You can have no adequate idea of the pleasures or of the difficulties of the errand I am now upon. The Congress is such an assembly as never before came together on a sudden in any part of the world. Here are fortunes, abilities, learning, eloquence, acuteness equal to any I ever met with in my life. Here is a diversity of religions, educations, manners, interests, such as it would seem almost impossible to unite in any one place of conduct, end quote. So John Adams' feelings about that letter from William Tudor are very much the same as mine. Quote, The sentiments expressed in your last to me are such as would do honor to the best of citizens, in the minds of the virtuous and worthy of any age or country in the worst of times, end quote. I feel exactly the same way. I probably couldn't articulate it as wonderfully as John Adams has here, but uh, I, I certainly feel exactly the same way. And the Latin phrase here, quote, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, end quote. What that means is, it is roughly translated, it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. I believe that quote is somewhere to be found in Arlington National Cemetery, by the way. I think it is. Uh, don't quote me on that, but I, I vaguely recall that to be a, a quote around Arlington National Cemetery. Look that up if you're curious. A lot of militaries around the world have taken that Latin quote and adopted it, uh, as I understand it, or at least s several have. But isn't that an interesting concept in and of itself? You know, like, these people who are willing to die for their country when there's a great many people in the country who aren't willing to give up their Netflix subscription for much of anything. And again, I, again, don't take the Netflix thing too seriously. I'm ha I use it as an example for crying out loud. I know there's somebody out there, why do you hate that I watch Netflix so much? I don't. I'm just using it as an example. And if you watch Netflix, I, it's, you're, it's, not a, it's not a problem. Everything in moderation is, is not so much a problem. I just use it as, a, as, half, as kind of a joke on, on the one hand, but also as an example uh, of, of some ridiculous thing that somebody would attach themselves to that they would refuse to give up uh, in, for anything, including their liberty. But you always got these, you always got folks out there who are willing to live up that Latin quote of, quote, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, end quote. But on the other hand, you've got these other people who won't, who will sell their grandmother for a nickel. And when you have those two kinds of personalities in a country, you're going to get conflict. And there's an example that I really want to use right now. I'm not going to, but you will see these conflicts in countries, including the United States, where you'll have one side that wants to clearly surrender liberty and freedom because they will they will literally almost literally sell their grandmother for a nickel. I mean if it, if it made them happy, if it made the government happy or if it made somebody happy, the tyrant, the parliament, the congress, whatever, they would sell their grandmother for a nickel. But you got the other side that's very very stuck in their ways and they have a very strong sense of what liberty is and its necessity and they're not going to move, they're not going to budge. And these two forces come at one another and it creates this great conflict. It, it would do well for us to understand that particular kind of friction that happens in society and why it happens. 
and how to best resolve that. Really, the only way to resolve it is to convince the other side not to sell their grandmother for a nickel, and to think 10 moves ahead instead of thinking about today only. People who are stuck only thinking about today are, are, are generally speaking, a problematic group of people. They always are, always have been. There's, there's no way around that. So let's continue. Let's read another, uh, another letter to John Adams. This one's from Mr. Edward Dilley, and this is written from London on September 24th of 1774. I told you we would get to this letter, and we are. Quote, Your favor of the 1st of August I received yesterday by a private hand. I most sincerely sympathize with you and the rest of my brethren in America for the cruel hardship you labor under, but severe as your trials are, I am thoroughly convinced that unanimity and firmness among yourselves will ensure you success in the end. Little did I think when I wrote you last that such a violent, that such violent, and I may say oppressive measures would be adopted by any administration, and even some of the friends of the ministry have been astonished at their going such lengths, end quote. So we last heard from Mr. Dilly. You might recognize the name Mr. Dilly, because I read a letter from him previously in episode 16, I believe it was. And it was a letter dated March the 4th of 1774. And when he wrote that letter, the intolerable acts hadn't yet fully come into fruition yet, and so he didn't know how bad it was going to get. Now he knows. By September 74, he knows, and he's telling John Adams, look, I didn't think it was going to get this bad. I didn't think the government was going to do something this bad. And he says even, even, quote, friends of the ministry have been astonished, end quote, as to how bad this has gotten. Isn't that interesting? So again, there is some support in London for what the Founding Fathers are doing. And, and a great understanding to the hardships that they endure at the hands of this tyrannical parliament. They may not word it exactly like that, a tyrannical parliament, but the people in the colonies certainly would, and they have. We've read about that. Let's continue on. Quote, It will not be long before the grievances you feel in America will be most severely felt in this country, and the decline of our manufactories and commerce. However, you may have warm and zealous friends on this side of the water. And I hope as we are just upon the eve of a new parliament that your grievances will soon be redressed by a repeal of those acts which are contrary to the chartered rights of America. Great Britain and her colonies are entitled alike to a free constitution, and an inability to enjoy property is the characteristic of slavery. Taxation and representation must go hand in hand, otherwise people cannot be free. I hope to hear good tidings from Congress, and it is composed of such wise and able men, I make no doubt... But they will devise such measures as will be for the welfare of the colonies and ultimately tend for the good of the, p the parent country, and that a line may be drawn to prevent all further disputes. You will oblige me very much if you will favor me with any particulars of the meeting and of any remarkable incidents which may occur in your province, end quote. So he's talking about friends on the other side of the water. Did you hear that? So, yeah, again, many on that side of the water knew what was happening to the colonies and they knew it was, it was wrong. So he's saying that. So if you think again that this was just a bunch of crazy, elitist, rich people, colonies, not paying their taxes, hated the government, and it was just them, they, they, they just were stubborn. No, the, the, some people on the other side knew that, knew that what was going on was, that is to say, what was happening to the colonies was wrong, and that the parliament had overreached. And notice how this guy doesn't think that the, the Congress that's meeting in the colonies, I'm sure the king would, doesn't really like that the Congress is meeting. He's, he's trying to control these assemblies over there in the colonies. But notice how this guy in London doesn't think that the Congress is really a problem. He thinks that this is a good thing that they're meeting together. Quote, As it is composed of such wise and able men, I make no doubt, but they will devise such measures as will be for the welfare of the colonies and ultimately tend for the good of the parent country, and that a line may be drawn to prevent all further disputes, end quote. So he hopes for the best on this Congress, as did uh, many people in the colonies too, by the way. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that this was going to eventuate in an armed conflict. It really wasn't. And I, I really enjoy his sentiments here. Quote, 
I hope, as we are just upon the eve of a new parliament, that your grievances will soon be addressed by a repeal of those acts which are contrary to the chartered rights of America. Great Britain and her colonies are entitled alike to a free constitution, and the inability to enjoy property is the characteristic of slavery. End quote. So he agrees that taxation without representation is a problem, and taxation and representation must go hand in hand. Otherwise, people cannot be free. And don't think this issue has passed us by. This issue is still a very real thing today. You have to pay attention to this kind of stuff. Parliaments and Congresses are very want to try to violate these things because they don't care about any of this stuff. They care about what? What did we learn in the last episode most of the time? What do they care about? Money and the career of power. There you go. To understand the last episode, that's a, that's a big deal. You really have to understand where these people come from. And this quote here, quote, An inability to enjoy property is the characteristic of slavery. End quote. Isn't that interesting? In the next few years, you need to keep this very much in mind. Honestly, you need to keep it in mind today, but certainly over the course of the next few years, you need to be very careful. I'm, I'm issuing a warning on behalf of this Edward Dilley. I'm issuing a warning to the people of the United States of America, and honestly, to the people of Europe as well. You need to be very, very careful the next few years. This concept of, quote, an inability to enjoy property is the characteristic of slavery, end quote. He's very right about this. You need to be very careful, people. Pay attention. Pay attention to what Mr. Dilley is telling you here. This isn't me telling you this. For all those folks out there who think that, you know, that, oh, I don't agree with that Roman and his message, really. You know, 90% of the time, my message on this podcast is not my message. It's the message of the Founding Fathers. And honestly, the, the message of Mr. Dilley, who's not a Founding Father, but he's uh, very much of a similar mind. And if he's corresponding with John Adams, then that makes him a fairly important character. Keep an eye on... On this, mark my words, people. This is already a problem. It's going to get worse. I'll probably do an episode on the Patreon podcast, by the way, about this at some point in the not-too-distant future. But at any rate, pay very close attention to that. And this thing about taxation without representation, this is a curious thing. This is going to be one of those big, big concepts you really need to focus on. And you're not going to hear a lot of other people talk about this. This is the value of this podcast. Frankly, I, I really do believe I offer a perspective inspired by the Founding Fathers that... Um, you just you're just not going to get anywhere else. Let me let me let me mention this here real quick. So he agrees that taxation without representation is a problem. Quote: Taxation and representation must go hand in hand, otherwise the people cannot be free. End quote. Boy, that's really succinct, isn't it? Isn't that short and to the point? Boy, this guy, this guy, these people that wrote back then, they, they wrote so much. They all they had to do was write letters to one another. There was no phone calls, no short texting, no twitters, no nothing like that. So these people were very good at writing, uh, very very good points, very eloquent. And there's a reason for that, and I'm very happy for that, by the way. People who study our time period, by the way, 20, the 2020s and all that, and honestly everything from the year 2000 probably forward, I feel sorry for them. They're, they're going to have a much harder time of it than I have studying the, the 1774 time period. But um, this can happen here in the United States, folks. Taxation without representation. It can happen here in the United States. Governments like to do this. Governments enjoy doing it. They, they, they get their cheap thrills off of doing this kind of thing. And if they can't do it directly... They will do it indirectly. Roman, for Pete's sake, what do you mean? Just get to the point, man. What are you talking about? Okay. If you remember what it was like to live in this country, the United States of America, a few years back, I, like I remember the 1990s, for example, I believe that there is a stark contrast in this country between people who remember the 1990s and people who don't. In other words, people who were born so late in the 90s they don't remember them, or people who were born after that, they're a very, very different group of people. 
versus people who actually remember what the 1990s were like in this country. And I was fairly young at the time, but I do remember the 1990s. To, as, as another clue as to, as to my background, I was, I was not an adult in the 1990s. I did not become an adult until after the 90s were over. Ta-da! But I do remember the 1990s, for the most part. And I remember that back then, inflation was called invisible taxation. Do you remember that? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Invisible taxation? I'll bet you if you were born after the 1990s, you have never heard that. Or it's very unlikely that you've heard that. But if you if you were born, or if you remember, especially if you remember like the 70s and 80s, I don't, by the way. But if you if you remember the 70s and 80s, then you probably know that term, invisible taxation. Or you may not remember it immediately, but it sounds familiar to you. Like, oh yeah, I remember invisible taxation. I 1974. That I remember that. Anyway, I'm just making up that year, by the way. I, that's not a significant year for invisible taxation. It could be, but not really. So, what is invisible tax? Taxation and what's that got to do with inflation? Well, you know, inflation, it is. These are the wise old men from the past saying this, not the founding fathers, but other people. Inflation is invisible taxation. It's deliberate. It's intentional. And it has the effect of taxing you. The question is, who's your representation there? How are you represented in inflation? The answer is you're not. Not really. So is it taxation without representation? Uh Uh-oh. Ladies and gentlemen, we have stumbled into something here, haven't we? We have just walked ourselves into a situation. If inflation is invisible taxation, and you don't have any representation where that inflation is occurring, is it taxation without representation? Oh my gosh. Somebody's out there going to be like, oh my gosh, Roman, are you saying what I think you're saying? Yeah, probably. I don't know. It depends on what you're thinking. Maybe not. But let me read this to you one more time. Quote, taxation and representation must go hand in hand, otherwise the people cannot be free. End quote. Think about that, folks. You know, and if you wanted to know the value of this podcast, there you have it right there. Who else is going to tell you that? Who else is going to ask such a jarring question and challenge your perception as to what's going on around you? I don't know. But I I thank Mr. Dilly for this. I I thank Mr. Edward Dilly from London in 1774, our guest on the podcast today, for saying that. So he is aware of the Congress, clearly, and he's hoping for the best, Mr. Dilly. And I like that about Mr. Dilly. I like that he's optimistic about what's going to happen, and I like that both he and John Adams and everybody, they all seem to be fairly optimistic that they can strike some kind of a a solution to this thing that's that's going to result in the Intolerable Acts being repealed and things going back, Boston being, and Massachusetts being allowed to go back to their, their colony charter and continue to be a part of the British Empire. And everything just kind of hum along smoothly, like it used to be. Well, for the most part. It was always rough around the edges, but you get the idea. Wouldn't that be nice? Of course, we know that that didn't happen. 250 years of hindsight. But, you know, it's a it's a great... Th- I, I, I really thoroughly like that these guys were so optimistic. Nobody regarded it. And as late as uh, September and October of 1774, nobody regarded it as a, as a foregone conclusion that this was going to eventuate in separation. People really did believe that this was probably going to, we could probably solve this and we can make the, we can, the parent country, Britain and the colonies, we can make this thing whole again and the, and we can move on, continued in partnership. But it just didn't work out that way. And eventually the United States and Great Britain would have to seek partnership in other ways as two separate countries. And even as two separate countries, you know, what a great partnership it can be at times, right? What a great partnership between the United States and Great Britain. You know, shout out to all you folks out there in Great Britain and, it can be a great partnership at times. It really can be. And we, we can accomplish some great things together. And I'm very happy about that, by the way. I don't, I don't hold any animosity towards the Britain of today for what they did a long time ago. Those were different people. Uh, the people the people of uh, Britain, and especially the British military, who did all the horrible things that they did in 1776 and 77, 78, uh, those people are gone. And the people of Britain today are, are different people. And there's, there's, no, uh, there's no hatred on my part for them at all. 
So let's read uh, an interesting letter. This one's very brief. We're going a little bit long in this episode, but that's fine. This one's short. And I, I've, I've, I, I, I said we would get to our, our, our great guest, John Quincy Adams, and here we are. Uh, this is going to be a letter written from John Quincy Adams to John Adams on October the 13th of 1774. And John, John, John Quincy Adams, by the way, was, was still a child, a young child at the time. And so he, you can tell he's just starting out writing these kinds of letters, like the kind that I, I like this letter because it's, it's, you can tell he's on his way to becoming the next John Adams and the next William Tudor in writing these great eloquent letters and these very articulate letters. But he's just at the very beginning of this. So his letters are not going to sound very exciting, but. This is how this begins. This is how a John Adams would have started his writing. And this is how a William Tudor would have started his writing as well. And I, I really, I, I, it puts a smile on my face every time I think about that. And every time I think about John Quincy Adams at this particular time writing this letter. So let's read this. Quote, I have been trying ever since you went away to learn to write you a letter. I shall make poor work of it. But sir, mama says you will accept my endeavors and that my duty to you may be expressed in poor writing as well as good. I hope I grow a better boy and that you will have no occasion to be ashamed of me when you return. Mr. Thaxter says I learn my books well. He is a very good master. I read my books to Mama. We all long to see you. I am, sir, your dutiful son, John Quincy Adams. End quote. Isn't that fantastic? I thought I would end this particular episode because it was so dramatic, especially. I wanted to end this podcast episode on a uh, on a positive light. Every time I read this letter, it puts a smile on my face. Every time. I think of this man, John Quincy, this 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 child at the time, not really man at the time, but child at the time. He witnessed the Revolutionary War. He was there. It happened almost literally in his backyard, right? As they were up on their farm outside of Boston in 1775, the British troop troops were not far away on the march and shooting at people. And the the siege of Boston was a very real thing to this this, this child. And he eventually grew up to be sixth president of the United States. And again, I, I I believe again he was he was I think the very first president to be photographed. Not while he was in office. I think it was after he was out of office. But uh, think about the history of this man, the things that he saw and heard, the things he experienced, the people that he got to grow up around. Uh, a John Adams, a Benjamin Franklin, a William Tudor, Abigail Adams, Samuel Adams. Can you imagine that as a child being surrounded by these people? Absolutely amazing. In, in many ways, he had a very he was very he's very blessed in that regard that he he got to be surrounded by the men of that quality and that education. Very brilliant men. And certainly, certainly, in my opinion, probably the best that that generation had to offer. Really an, an amazing life. Amazing. And this letter here really is the, the very beginnings of that, that sharp intellect beginning to develop and being, being put on paper. And I, I like that, he's, that he makes sure and, you know, mentions to his father, quote, I learn my books well, end quote. So he's, uh, he's making sure to communicate to his father that his studies continue and that he is, uh, he is dedicating himself to his studies and his, his education, which is very good. And we should all do the same uh, to carry on the tradition of a John Quincy Adams and to, uh, to, to continue our education, especially the education of our children, and to make sure that they, they live up to the standard uh, of a John Quincy or a John Adams or a William Tudor and certainly teach this history to them, perhaps. But if John Quincy Adams can benefit from the exposure of the writings and the education and the learning of a John Adams or a Mr. William Tudor, then why can't the, the next generation of the United States benefit the same way? They can. That's the beauty of it. They can benefit from the writings of John Adams 
and they can benefit from the writings of a Benjamin Franklin or a George Washington. It's all right here. You just have to reach out and grab a hold of this information and actually take it in. And again, like I said, this podcast makes it easier than ever. It will never be easier than it is right now. You can listen to this in the car. You can listen to this on the bus on the way to school. You can listen to this wherever, what have you. You could be doing something else while studying this material practically and listen to it. That's about as easy as it gets, folks. And I want to thank you folks for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I have, um, because we're so long in this episode, I'm going to skip my concluding remarks section, and I'm just going to end it here in the next uh, minute or so. But uh, certainly want to thank you folks for joining me on this episode. It is great to have you here. It's always an honor uh, to be joined by people who are willing to dedicate their time to this material. Uh, like I've said before, this isn't a glamorous podcast. We're not going to have celebrities stop by on the podcast and say, hey, how you doing? And we're not going to have any laser light shows or fancy special effects here. It's just the writings of the Founding Fathers. It's just an intellectual discourse. That's all this is. And to say, to, to think that you folks spend your time with that, when there's so much other entertainment value type stuff uh, out there for you to spend your time on, that's a testament to you. It's a testament to your quality. And I thank you for that. And I, I really, uh, really appreciate it. And uh, I will look forward to the next episode of this podcast as well. I, it's going to be a short form episode, obviously, that's going to drop on Thursday, barring some catastrophe, as always. I, I try to be on time with this and have been for the most part. And then after that, of course, we'll have another feature length episode. And as always, if you want to join me on my Patreon podcast, it's available for you folks as well. We're talking about some interesting topics over there, some serious topics, and also some more lighthearted topics get talked about over there as well on uh, subjects such as technology and uh, stuff like that. Uh, Patreon.com slash podcast with Roman. Uh, always there for you. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, reviews, please leave those on the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It lets you leave reviews. I don't know much about the other platforms. I checked on some of them. Some of them just don't let you leave reviews. But uh, Apple Podcasts certainly does, so you can leave a review there. Uh, or if you don't have the ability to do that, if you don't have access to Apple Podcasts, you can go over to Patreon. If you choose to subscribe, you can send comments, questions over there as well. So, with all of that said, please join me on the next episode. And until then, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.